Well, most of you are probably, and kids, you're all released now to go to your Bible explorers to do a little exploring and uh, have fun back there. Uh, most of you probably have caught my mistake. It's not Jason's work crew. It's Justin's cleaning crew uh, for Thursday night, so apologize about that. I was thinking about something else. And, but anyway, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn back to John chapter 5. And uh, last week, we saw the real issue uh, that what is going on uh, in this chapter with Christ coming to the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ. We've talked a lot lately about when it comes to your Bible, being able to go behind the scenes underneath the surface and to see what is really happening. Uh, Very little of the Bible uh, is at face value. And uh, there's always some doctrinal issue that, uh, or some teaching that God is trying to show us. And we saw here in chapter 5, throughout the last couple of weeks, we saw a great miracle that Christ did there at Bethesda. And then we saw immediately the rejection uh, of what he did. And I said this Thursday night uh, in a Bible study, the importance of when it comes to your Bible getting things down to the lowest common denominator, getting it to the baseline where you can't get uh, any, any, any more out of it. It's where it needs to be to show you what it has. And that's true not only of the Bible, but it's true of life. Most issues in life are never resolved because a person doesn't get down to the root issue. And that's what the lowest common denominator will do. You can't divide it down anymore, and finally you're at the root problem or the root issue the real issue. And that's what we have in chapter 5 here and what we did last week. And we based it on chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where it said, But Jesus answered then, My father worketh here, the other two I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath with the miracle that he did, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And last week, we saw the real root problem. We got finally to the lowest common denominator of what Israel's leadership, their problem is with Christ, and that is the fact that he was very God, uh, the deity of Christ, the fact that he claimed, and rightly so, to be the Son of God, which we now know makes him uh, equal with God. And we saw that how then that I, I took you back to Isaiah chapter 14 uh, verses, uh, in, uh, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 and clearly showed you that the devil's main fundamental issue that he had was that he wanted to be God. And because of that, now he is manifesting all of that because Christ has come who is the Son of God and I showed you how that in Isaiah 14, 14 and other places that he said, I will be like the Most High God. He wanted to be God, and uh, that's, uh, you know, that's the real problem here. And now the devil, through the non-biblical satanic implants, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, he has infiltrated the nation of Israel and got them to reject him for that very reason. And they too now want to get rid of Jesus, who he threatens their power grab uh, over the nation of Israel. And this is a great illustration of what's going on behind the scenes, how the devil is controlling the nation of Israel through these men 
for the specific purpose of him wanting to be God and taking away that from the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are paying attention, and I would think that would be most of you, uh, this is the same system, and I explained this last week, this is the same system of Satan's working today, who again has infiltrated the church with a non-biblical system. And we've talked about this. We talked about it Thursday night. We talked about it last week. A non-biblical system of higher education when it comes to the Bible, Bible colleges, Bible scholars, many times pastors and teachers, who all have one thing in common, and they want to get rid of the one book, the final authority, the Word of God, which is the absolute standard for everybody. Uh, And as it said in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You cannot separate one from the other. And we talked about understanding the repetitiveness of history, how history will always repeat itself, and we saw that last week over and over and over again, as the devil did in Genesis 3.1, you know, he did the same thing that uh, he's doing today. He came to Eve, and he says, Yea, hath God said, and then he changed what God said. And that is the standard pattern uh, of history all down through uh, the Bible and certainly the history. Uh, Up to, to, you know, correct the Word of God and to show all Uh, you know, that uh, where God made a mistake. And that's where scholarship is today. Scholarship is looking at the Bible, telling you that there's mistakes in it that God made, that you can't trust it, but you got to trust their scholarship. And they will look at the Bible, tell you this is a mistake, it's a mistranslation, it's this or it's that, but I will correct it for you. And what they do, instead of the Holy Spirit of God, John chapter 16, leading and guiding you into all truth, now it's these birds. And that's, that's, they get to be God, John chapter 8, verse 44. They get to play God by telling you that the book that God gave you is wrong. You can't trust it. Trust me and my education and my knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, and I'll fix the mistakes that God made for you. That's right out of the pit of hell. That's the devil at his best. And uh, that's exactly what they try to do. Believe me, developing your ability to go behind the scenes and get in wherever you're at in the Bible or history or even your own personal life, the ability to get to the lowest common denominator and get where it really is is invaluable to you and me as a Bible student. And today... I thought, since this is the main issue, and I want you to be up on all of the main issues, I want to devote this time to the number one doctrine in all the Bible, and that will be the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bible says, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I can't think of anything that will lift him up more than somebody declaring that Jesus Christ was very God. And so we're going to do that today, and uh, let's ask God's blessing on it, and then we'll get uh, into it. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Truly, Lord, we believe that you are very God. We believe that God uh, manifested himself uh, to us through you, and that uh, we, we believe that, Lord. We believe that is the central doctrine all down through the history of this world and certainly the history of the New Testament church. We love you. We ask you, Father, to honor us today with your presence. Give us your understanding. 
that these good men and women may leave here today a little more understanding this great book and how great you truly are. And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise and put us under the blood of Christ today. Forgive us where we have failed thee, that we may be able to declare the truth of God's word today to these your people. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to take John chapter 5 in just a few minutes, and I want to show you four key areas in this chapter that will testify to the fact that he was the very Son of God, that he is God, and that he is, uh, you know, uh, this great doctrine. Now, I have mentioned this to you before, and uh, you probably will remember this, but, uh, you know, we talked about this on, on, on Institute on, on uh, Saturday morning. Uh, you know, down through church history, which runs about 2,000 years or so, you know, God, for the ease of understanding it, has broken it down into seven periods. And we know that from our chart over here. The book of Revelation is really where it gets laid out in the first three chapters. And we have talked about it many, many, many times. And we know that the first church is the church at Ephesus. And that runs from about Acts chapter 20 up to approximately somewhere around there, 180 A.D. And then we have the church at Smyrna. And that will run from approximately, and this is all dates or approximate dates, about 180 to 325 A.D. Then we enter into the third period, which is called Pergamos. And that will be approximately 325 up to around 500, which begins the Dark Ages. We have Thyatira, the next church, number four, which picks up around 500 and runs up to the middle of the Dark Ages, around 1,000. And, and then the Sardis uh, picks up around 1,000 and brings us up to the dawn of the Reformation, about 1500 A.D. We know then that Philadelphia is the sixth one, which picks it up around 1600 and runs for the next 400 years up to around 1900. And then, of course, the last one, we've talked about many, many times as Laodicea. This is the one that we are in now today. Starts around 1900 or so and runs up to where we're at today and will up to the rapture of the church. All of these are found in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And it forms for us, like we talked about in Institute and in Bible study, a natural breakdown. So an ease of studying a very complex issue in the Bible uh, being able to decode church history by God's simple systematic breakdown. And uh, I showed you in Institute the other morning how that the book of Acts and Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 will actually go together. And uh, this will help you. And what you will find when you study these churches, the true church now, and uh, you'll find that the true church line is defined for you in the book of Acts, and then you can follow it through history if you know where to look, but you always have to look behind the scenes. During the uh, church history, the true church is greatly overshadowed by, by Rome. She is greatly overshadowed by all of the things that are going on that the devil is using to try to destroy the church. A number of years ago, before I moved to Kansas City, I had a guy that I worked with and he was a Roman Catholic. And I had witnessed to him uh, almost on a daily basis. He, we worked together. 
And he was an older guy. I'm sure he's gone. I'm sure he's dead now. And uh, he was a World War II vet. And uh, I would witness to him, but he was Roman Catholic. And he would just get infuriated with me trying to tell him, uh, you know, that the Catholic Church couldn't get him to heaven. So he got so upset about it that he had a cousin who was a priest and lived in Maslin, Ohio. So he asked me if I would, he could take me to his priest. He said, my priest can answer your questions. And I said, absolutely, let's go. And so he took me over there and, you know, Father Shenanigans was there and we, we sat down and we talked and I'll never forget. He started out nice because that's the way they do. But when he saw he wasn't going to get anywhere, then he got a little bolder and finally... You know, he, he said to me, he says, well, you know, he says, he says, you're a fine young man. And he says, I appreciate your, uh, your ability to, to know a lot of things. But he says, I just have one question. And he says, where was your church before the Reformation? Now, here's his point. The Catholic Church had blocked everything and severely persecuted the Albigensians and the Waldenders and the true church. So... He thinks that me as a Baptist really didn't exist until Martin Luther's time in the Reformation. So he, a he asked me the stupidest question you could ever ask a guy like me. He says, let me ask you a question, young man. Where was your church before the Reformation? I said, where was your face before you washed it? He looked at me and I said, behind the dirt. Before you wash your face, it was behind the dirt. You want to know where my church was? It was behind the dirt, your church. He didn't appreciate that. It digressed from there. But it's the only time that I ever got him that, uh, that he didn't have a way to go because, well, we don't get into all that. But it was, a, in any way, you know, it's a thing where, where was the true church? Behind the dirt. Behind the devil's church and everything that was going on to try to destroy it. And doing this 2,000 years, the church in every period of church history, and this is something that most people don't understand, every period of these seven church, churches, they had to deal with a doctrinal issue that came up. Something arose from the devil's crowd that wanted to, uh, to try to stop them, and the true church had to deal with it. Now, even in Paul's time, bad teaching began to creep in. We call this bad teaching, for you new folks around here, a heresy. Heresy is bad teaching or false doctrine that goes against the Scripture. In the Bible, just so you know how to trace it down, it's called leaven. Leaven is a mixture you, you find that the Jews were always supposed to eat unleavened bread because unleavened has no mixture to it. And when you put leaven in it, then it makes it worldly in the sense of that. So leaven then in the Bible will always be a picture of somebody putting bad doctrine into things. And you'll find this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, where you know Paul is dealing with the church at Galatia, and somebody is trying to bring in another gospel, another Jesus, and he talks about the fact how just a little bit of leaven allow just a little bit in time it will destroy or as he says leaven the whole lump. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 6 through 8 Paul tells that church that they are who had leaven in it that they are to purge 
out of their church leaven, bad teaching, false doctrine. And uh, you'll find in the parable in Matthew chapter 13, down around verse 33, the parable of the leaven, where uh, the Bible says that you had had three measures of meal. And those three measures of meal will line up to the true Christianity that a woman, Roman Catholic Church, infused leaven and destroyed all of it. It's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a futuristic parable. And, uh, you know, in Matthew chapter 16, verses 6 through 12, they're told uh, to take heed uh, of, the, of the leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were bringing in false teaching, false doctrine. And false doctrine will take two forms. And you need to know this. You'll find that in the you'll find that in the in in God's people, saved people, you'll find you'll find leaven, bad teaching, bad doctrine, and uh, it'll be like the teaching today that has become prominent that there's no rapture. The charismatic movement will be filled with it. The aspect of predestination is completely uh, held within people who claim that they are saved, and they probably are. The things that saved people will get into that are false teaching outside of the Bible. There's a number of them. I'm just giving you a few here. Then the second form of heresy will be the ones that is without the body of Christ. One is in the body of Christ, saved people. The other one is without the body of Christ. That's unsaved people. And that will be things that you cannot be saved if you believe. Baptism for salvation would be one of them. Works for salvation would be another one. And, of course, the great heresy of all-millennialism or post-millennialism would be another one. And then, obviously, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two forms of heresy. And I want you to know that because in each period of church history, you're going to begin to see how they have to, the true church has, is faced with these issues. And every one time one of them came up, they had to decide if it was in the Bible or not. And they had to decide if they were going to allow it in or allow it out. And this all starts in Paul's time. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, that somebody's already beginning to corrupt the Word of God. So you're going to find that each period in church history, God's true church, was faced with the creeping in of leaven, and they had to decide. Now, I'm going to start with us, and I'm going to work back to Christ's day. And I'm going to show you, I'm not going to come from Christ's day to us. I'm going to start with us, and I'm going to show you fundamentally every issue that they had to deal with and then how important it was. Well, today, the Laodicea, that's us. I gave you that around 1900 to where we're at today. Do you know what the issue is today that the church has to decide? Do you have the absolute perfect Word of God? That's our doctrinal issue. Do you have the Word of God? When you open up your Bible, do you have the absolute perfect true Word of God or you just have a translation by man that is filled with errors? That's the question that the church has to answer today. That's our issue. And, of course, you can see, and the reason why I use that first, because I want to use as an example as we move back through history, where we're not part of, we're part of this one. So you can see how it impacts, and many, many churches throw the Bible out. Then we would move back into the Philadelphian church age. And that would run about 1600 at the 
Reformation and up to about 1900. During that time period, Bible believers had to wrestle with the leaven and the false teaching of predestination or Calvinism. Calvinism comes out of the Reformation. And so now the church is faced with this heresy that not Christ didn't die for everybody, that he only died for a certain group of people, and if you're in that group, then you're going to heaven no matter what, and if you're not, there's nothing you can do to be saved. And the church had to deal with that. Then you move back to Thyatira, which is around uh, 1,000 to 500. And during this time, Sardis, and Sardis is 1,500 to 1,000. And during this time, they had to deal with the secu- eternal security of the believer. Once you got born again, once you got saved, could you lose it? And that is the issue that they had to struggle with. Because you remember now that the Catholic Church is coming into full form here, and she's teaching otherwise. So they had to thrash that issue out. Then, now we'll go to Thyatira, 1,000 to 500. And now the issue was amillennialism and postmillennialism. Was Christ really coming back literally? That arose out of the Catholic Church who was teaching that he wasn't coming back literally. Then we would go back to Pergamos, which is around 500, back to 325. And there the issue the church had to deal with was baptism for salvation. When Constantine came to power in 300 A.D. or 313 A.D., and he started the Catholic Church, and he called the uh, Council of Nicaea and began from there, this is where the doctrine of baptism regeneration became an official heresy. The church had to deal with it, the true church. Going back to Smyrna, which is 325, back to around 200, this church then had to deal with the resurrection. Did Christ really come up from the dead? Did he really come out of that tomb? Because there was a lot of teaching going around that he did not. Just like, and I use this as a perspective now, just like you have churches out there today by the bucket loads that don't believe the King James Bible is the Word of God, and you have a group of Bible believers that do, it was the same way all down through here. In the Smyrna church period, there were bucket loads of people that claimed that he did not come out of that tomb. But the true church always held to the Word of God and to the truth. Then we come back to Ephesus, which takes us from about, uh, you know, uh, 200, 180 someplace back to uh, Acts chapter 20. And obviously the issue that they struggled with was the deity of Christ. Was he really the Son of God? Now, Because the church had to, this is so important, because the church had to deal and flesh all these doctrines out and mark them as heresy and bad teaching and leaven, what it did for you and for me today is form what we call the Bible believers' distinctives. The eight or nine absolute bedrock teaching that the true church of Jesus Christ is built on. And it's simply the deity of Christ, the resurrection, adult salvation through the blood of Christ, a literal hell, premillennialism, New Testament local church structure, 
and the authority of the Word of God. And the last one is one that everybody believed down through church history that was a Bible believer, and that is that the Roman Catholic Church was Satan's church. Those make up the main, what we would call Baptist distinctives or Bible believer. This is what the church is built on. Why are we built on it? Because they proved the test down through church history that the church was faced with these things. It wasn't just, oh yeah, this is what we want to believe. No, the true church had to meet these head on. The true church was challenged on every one of these. And the true church had to come to the place where they thrashed it out, stuck with the Bible, proved them to be heresy, and then formed for us the bedrock of what this church is built on, this and other things too. Now, for you and for me, Paul tells us that heresies among us are a good thing. You wouldn't think that would be true. They're a bad thing, but for you and for me in the true church, he says they're a good thing. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19, that there must, there, there, for there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Know what he says? He's saying the fact that these heresies came into the church, there's nothing to fear from them because the true biblical church always has the protection of the Word of God and it will take these teachings and put them through the test, the litmus test that you're going to find that will prove them right or wrong. And he says when heresies come in, they will prove what is really true. And that's invaluable. And that's why the true test of any heresy will be simply three things. It'll be the Bible itself. It'll be history. Where did it come from? And the true church. And of course, 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, when you have these things, and this is where we're at today, this is our church. Paul says, when you have these things, the things that I have committed unto you, you pass them on to faithful men. What we believe as a church wasn't my idea. It wasn't something that I came up with. It wasn't something that Mel Sabaka came up with. It wasn't something that Ruckman came up with. It is the tried and true doctrine that has been established and tested through the true biblical line churches all the way back to the book of Acts. And that's an incredible concept for you to understand. And because uh, there there will be, even in today, you will find where Uh, saved people and unsaved people will try to inject heresy into your church. And I see it all the time. And of course, uh, somebody would have a really hard time pulling that off here with you guys here. Or you eat his lunch before he ever got it out of the sack. But I'm telling you, it happens. And you get this thing where somebody says, well, you know, uh, I have this great doctrinal truth that that only God, God only gave it to me. You know, I had a guy one time saying, well, God gave me this. He didn't give it to so-and-so. He didn't give it to this guy back here, but he gave it to me. When guy starts talking like that, you know you're dealing with a heretic because God doesn't do that. You see, if it isn't established through the true church, it isn't something that you just came up with. You may have that in your own mind and you may think that and you may want to believe that and that's fine with me, but you know what? you don't pass the test. And the test simply is it had to be established in the Bible, which everybody can claim, but ah, to fix that, it has to be established in history. Did the true church believe this? No, 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 I just got this from God myself. Well, okay, well then take it to yourself. 
Now, let me give you some key places in the Bible that, uh, that lay out his deity before we get to chapter 5 here because I want to give you, you need to have these key verses. Now, I want you to know that every one of these verses that I'm going to give you, if you have any other Bible than a King James Bible, in most of these cases, they're going to be missing, they're going to be altered, uh, or they're going to be slandered. And very few of them will stay the original. The first one I would tell you would be, and we use this a lot, is Proverbs chapter 8 itself. I, I don't know. I mean, I could just do Proverbs chapter 8 and never go anywhere else. Proverbs chapter 8 will give you the whole understanding of why God did what he did the way he did it. Not only concerning creation, not only concerning the devil, not only concerning Lucifer and Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, but concerning the way Christ came. Now, last week, I, I told you that uh, if you went back in Job chapter 40 and 41, of uh, 41 and 42, I told you that there were seven garment changes that the devil does down through history. Remember that? And he changes garments, but he keeps the same face. Well, I told you that, and I was saving the other counterpart to that today. The reason why he does that is he does that as a counterfeit, because when you study the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find that he goes through seven garment changes down through history of the Bible and the history of the world. So the devil's seven are counterfeit of the Lord's true seven. And uh, chapter 8 is an incredible, uh, it's an incredible passage and it's completely destroyed in all the new Bibles. You couldn't get a chain reference going out of that if your life depended on it. When you go through Proverbs chapter 8, verses 1 and 6, he lays out the key of wisdom and understanding. And he says, God is going to speak to us of excellent things. But you couldn't get it out of any other Bible than a King James Bible because it's been destroyed. Then, the next one I would give you would be in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which deals with Christ's supernatural birth. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Now Israel's looking for a sign, remember? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So he, they're told, Isaiah told them, and this is six, seven hundred years before Christ ever shows up. <clears throat> he told the nation of Israel that the sign you want to look for will be a virgin that conceived. Now that's quite a deal. A virgin, someone who's never been married, never been with a man, never had any children before, a virgin is going to conceive and bring forth a child. You know what your new Bible says? Takes out the word virgin and puts in a young woman. How many young women right here now, you're either with child or you had a child and you're under 30? Let me see your hand. Put your hand. Are you under? Okay, under 40. That's good. You're under 40. Put your hands up. I want to see you. Is this talking about you here? You see, any young woman can have a child. What kind of sign is that? If that's true, my church is filled with them. We got more signs than I-70 going to St. Louis. You want a real sign that's hard to explain? How about a virgin? See? But your NIV and your ASV and your RSV take out the word virgin. You know why? Because back in Alexandria... When Origen destroyed that underneath the devil's guidance, he didn't believe it. So he took out virgin and put a young woman. 
And so guys are up there preaching in churches today with a Bible that denies the deity of Christ in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And everybody's, okay, everybody's cool with it. You know, there's too many things that God's people are cool with. You know that? So I'm going to turn up the heat so you're not so cool. Now it says here, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. You know what the word Emmanuel means? It means God is with us. That's Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. What a great verse. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. That's Christ, justified of the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into the glory. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know what your NIV does? You know what Origen didn't believe that back there when he corrected it in over 60,000 places. So you know what he did? He took God out, God manifested in the flesh, and he put in just the word he. He was manifested in the flesh. Well, who's that? They just can't stand God being in there. And yet, they're preaching from that Bible in churches today. One of my favorite, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Boy, if I give in Jehovah Witnesses a fit with this one. But under this, God speaking, but under the Son, Jesus Christ, he, God saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Clearest verse in the Bible that Jesus Christ is God, by God himself. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Familiar verse. For unto us a child is born, that's Christ. Unto us a son is given, that's Christ. And the government shall be in on his shoulders, that's Christ. And his name, whose name? Christ. His name shall be called Wonderful, okay, Counselor, okay. The mighty God. Right there in front of you. You remember the story in John chapter 20, verse 28, I'm sure, when uh, Thomas, you know, we always call, we, it's, we always have a doubting, doubting Thomas. Uh, you know, we're a guy that doubts everything, or you're just a doubting Thomas. And, uh, you know, and Thomas said, I don't believe he's resurrected. And they said, we saw him. And Thomas said, except I see him and put my hand in the, in the spear hole in his side and the nail prints in his hand, I am not going to believe. Now, doubting Thomas, a little later on, married doubting Debbie, and they had a terrible relationship. And in John chapter 20, verse 27, in verse, uh, down there in verse 28, he finally does that, and when he sees the Lord and puts his hand in his wounds, you know what he says? He says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. I've already given you John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Gave you John chapter 1, verse 14, 12, 13, and 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You know the greatest, you know the greatest couple of verses in the Bible on Christ being part of the Trinity and being God is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. It's the greatest verse in the Bible on the Trinity claiming that Jesus Christ is God, that these three are one, 
And you know what? In every new Bible, every new Bible outside of King James Bible, that verses, those verses are taken out. You know, if, you know what you find in there? You'll find a little footnote down on the bottom that tells you this. These verses were not found in the most reliable manuscripts. You know what the most reliable manuscripts they're talking about are? The ones that origin corrupted, the ones that the Roman Catholic Church built their Bibles on, the manuscripts that every new Bible on this planet comes from outside of a King James Bible. They will tell you the only manuscript that that verse is found in is the one that your Bible comes from. Praise the Lord. You see? I mean, these are things you need to know before we ever get into John chapter 5 here on these things. In Luke chapter 11, you have the Lord's Prayer. It's really not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord never prayed it, but He gave it to the disciples, so we'll call it the disciples' prayer to be accurate. But this is the one everybody says, you know, everybody says when they're out ready to die that they're not saved. And this is the one that they all, they all quote, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, that when you're getting ready to die, this is what you say and you think this is going to save you. And of course, in all the new Bibles, that prayer is almost completely taken out and the prayer that they put in is found in the Bible handbook of black magic and white witchcraft. When you pray the prayer to the devil, that prayer in your NIV is now in your Bible. And the one that God put in is taken out. And you're supposed to believe that that's okay. You're supposed to believe that some guy with an education PhD is a posthole digger. You're you're supposed to believe that he's smarter than God and he can take out the prayer that God put in and put in the devil's prayer and you're dumb enough to buy it. And God's people are. You'll find in multiple cases, and I'm not going to go through them all, the word begotten is taken out, which is key to the deity of Christ. Now, that's why the devil hates the Bible, the King James Bible you have in your hand today, because it is the only Bible in the world today that protects and proclaims his deity that Jesus Christ was God. So, therefore, it has to go. And in the new Bibles, they're all changed and altered or they're left out altogether. Now, because of that, all false religions. Now, we're building something here. You're going to learn a lot today if you're paying attention. Because of that, all false religions will also deny the deity of Christ. Now, what I'm about to show you, we're going to have to go behind the scenes. So go with me here. Stay with me. And uh, when you go back to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, you have the Holy Spirit of God for you in those two chapters, have, in 17 in particular, has laid out for you the devil's church. And if anybody can go through that chapter, you'll see that that church is no more than the Roman Catholic Church. She's called the great whore of Babylon. And as you come down through chapter 17, you will find seven identifying characteristics that defines this church and decodes her. And if you don't have them in your Bible, I suggest as we go through, you mark them down. The first one is in 17.2. And it says about this church that the kings of the earth uh, have committed and the inhabitants have committed spiritual fornication, uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you saw the devil ran the world through religion. And he's running it through this church today. The next thing in verse 4 of chapter 17, it says that her colors are purple and scarlet. And if you would do a little investigation, you would find the official colors of the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, they're purple and scarlet. And in Matthew chapter 27 and John chapter 19, when the Rome put the robe on Christ to have him crucified, it was a Roman robe, purple and scarlet. In verse 4 of chapter 17, it says that she is decked with gold. I would suggest, if you can still find it, you get a book by Avro Manhattan. Avro Manhattan was without a doubt the leading authority on the Roman Catholic Church anywhere in, in the world, probably the universe. And he wrote a number of books all dealing with the Roman Catholic Church exposing her. He died of an old age. I'm surprised he wasn't assassinated someplace along the way. But he wrote a book called <coughs> Vatican Billions. You ought to read that book. <coughs> it will tell you that the Roman Catholic Church, <coughs> decked with gold here, is the richest organization on the face of the planet. Estimated net worth is between 60 and 80 billion dollars. In chapter 17, verse 4, we're told that the symbol of this church and this woman will be a golden cup. And the golden cup is the symbol of the Roman Catholic Church. And every new Bible of an NIV, right down, somewhere in the beginning of that, before you get into it, there'll be that cup. will be right there. This is the cup that... <coughs> Indiana Jones was searching for when he was looking for the lost chalice that Christ drank at the Last Supper. This has been the one down through history that, that golden challenge that, that, that they, he drank out of. It's been the source of conspiracy and all down there, the Catholic Church claims to have that cup. The next thing in verse 6, the woman is, there's a woman connected with his church. She's a female deity. And for us, that will be Mary. If you want to see that in the Old Testament, go back to 1 Kings chapter 18, where you find Ahab, one of the types of the Antichrist back there, and his wife represents the, where Ahab represents the Antichrist in the political system. His wife represents the religious system. Her name is Jezebel. In verse 6 also, you will find that this woman, this church, <clears throat> has murdered God's people and is drunk with their blood. For that, I suggest you make a little trip back to the bookstore <clears throat> and you pick up a book back there called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Better yet, <clears throat> get the little book back there called Waldensians. Better yet, get the little book back there, if we still have it, <clears throat> it's called Tortured for Their Faith. And you will see what church was drunk with the blood of God's saints. The last thing you'll find in verse 9 is this woman is a city that sitteth on seven mountains. The Roman Catholic Church will like to tell you that this is all uh, uh, nothing prophetic here, that this is all literal, and this is a real woman who lived through that time. If it is, she was some big woman who sat on seven mountains.
There's only one city in the world, my dear friend, that is built on seven mountains. It's Rome. It's just that simple. You don't have to go to the Bible for that. You don't have to believe me to that. Just get a subscription to National Geographic. And when you get past the naked natives, you'll probably find it. Now look at verse 5 of chapter 17. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now you may be wondering where I'm going with all this. I'm going to show you how that the doctrine of the deity of Christ is the central theme. And the Bible says here, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. And there's two things that we got to see out of this title. Number one, she's a mystery. So she needs to be decoded. And we've already started that process, Revelation 17 and 18. The second thing I want you to see is she's the mother of all false religions. She's the mother of harlots. Every false religion in the world will come out of her. All come out of her. I think the term is all roads lead to Rome. Now, as a side note here, you will find, and I find things like this very interesting. Most people never connect the dots, but I'm a dot connector. And I find in Mark chapter 5, verse 3, that you'll find here the man who was demon-possessed, demon possessed with the devil. And, uh, you know, this is the one where Christ cast them out. They go into the swine and head down into the water and they go into the pigs and go down to the water and your first case of deviled hams right there. So it's a thing where that's a true story. But it struck me that this guy was hanging out and he's got 12,000 devils in him. He's hanging out in the graveyards. He's hanging out in the tombs. Unclean spirits, demonic activity, have an affinity for dead bodies. So this guy, one of the characteristics that you'll find, he's hanging out in the cemeteries, in the tomb. He's living there. And I thought about that, and I thought to myself, you know what? Wow, what a great revelation. You realize in the Dark Ages when the Roman Catholic Church was building all of her churches, her great cathedrals, you realize that she was building them all on the bodies of dead people? Because in that church, wherever you go in Europe, the foundation is dead people. Catacombs. They got whole rooms with skulls stacked up to the ceiling. You see, here's the key. When you got saved, you got in Christ, right? So you're in Christ this morning if you're saved. Catholic Church doesn't teach that. They, church, they teach that their church is their salvation. So for them to get in Christ, they got to get in the church. So when you die because you're in Christ, you go to heaven. In their world, when they die, if they're going to go to heaven, they got to get in the church. So the churches are filled with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dead corpses because that's how they got in Christ because for them, the church is getting in Christ. And their churches are built on dead people, just like the maniac here, had an affinity for the tombs. She's a mystery. She's the mother of all false religions in the world, either directly or indirectly. Now, I want to show you something here. The devil's seven main counterfeits. Now, watch this. Remember the verse now, 
who can discover the face of their garments, of his garments. Remember that verse last week. When America was started, God had picked America to do a great work. We don't have time to get into that today. We'll get into it in church history in great detail. But he picked America, preserved America for a reason. America obviously reneged on that and didn't follow through with it, but that's beside the point. He chose her for a specific purpose. So you're going to find that the devil attacks America. And he attacks America with seven demonic false churches that try to destroy America. And what God does in face of each one of these, he brings a revival across America from 1700 to around 1940, 1950. And in church history, or in history, they're called the seven great awakenings. The Seven Great Awakenings was the awakening of the Holy Spirit of God. The last one was around 1940, 1950. There won't be any more. And these Great Awakenings were in response to the devil's churches that were coming out of Rome as counterfeits. Watch. Just watch. Just watch. When our pilgrims' fathers came over by 1700, when they were starting to form everything up, over in Europe, Unitarianism had developed to the point where it was creeping into America. It's a heresy. Stay with me. Around 1800, we saw the Mormon church now being developed, a great satanic heresy. Around 1830, we saw the Seventh-day disadvantages begin to develop, satanic in origin. In 1840, we saw the Christian science organization began to unfold. In 1850, we saw the Church of Christ, totally demonic. In 1860, we saw in America the Jehovah Witnesses, totally demonic. And uh, in around 1889, we saw unity come back into play, and we kind of move into the New Age movement, so to speak. And here are seven demonic churches that infiltrated America to stop the gospel that God was going to proclaim to take it around the world through America. And so in each one of these, God sent another in awakening, seven of them, to match these seven. Now, Unitarianism, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventist, Christian Science, Church of Christ, JWs, Unity, they all look different, don't they? If we would go to their churches, we'd hear them all, they look different. They all have different garments, but at face value, you know what every one of these believe? Every one of these churches deny that Jesus Christ was God. Every one of them. You see, the devil changes garments, but the face is always the same. And the face goes back to Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. He can't stand Christ being God, so he perpetrated these false, fake churches and they all believe, they've all believed the same three things the Catholic Church teaches because they all come out of Rome. She's the mother of these. You know what the Catholic Church teaches? The Catholic Church teaches that, that she's the only true church. The Catholic Church teaches that there's no salvation outside of that church. 
The Catholic Church teaches that baptism is the only mode for you to get your original sin washed away. And I'm going to show you in a moment where the Roman Catholic Church denies the deity of Christ even though they say they don't. Those are the same three characteristics you find in every one of these American cults. They all think they're the only true church. They only think that they're the only way to heaven is through them. They only believe that baptism is the mode of salvation and every one of them deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why? They came out of the mother of harlots. Now you may say, well, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Christ was God. Well, they like to give you a lot of lip service, but if you go behind the scenes, you'll find that's not true. You go into a Catholic church and you look at the statues or you look at the paintings or you go through whatever you do. They like to portray Christ in two ways in the Catholic church. Either as a baby or he's dead. And you're going to find that whenever you see they got a female deity connected with them, Mary, the mother of God, so every picture you see with Mary, she'll be elevated higher than Christ. Christ will be below her. Why? Because Jeremiah chapter 44, she's the queen of heaven. And her deity supersedes his deity. It's all a smokescreen, folks. And you don't see it till you go behind the scenes and see who's pulling the strings. And today, like John chapter 5, Satan's little helpers, uh, you know, are, are, are hard at work destroying uh, only Bible that gives him his rightful title, the King James 1611, which claimed that Jesus Christ is very God. Okay. Now, you need to know that because it's out there. And the more you deal with people, the more you're going to come up against it, and you have to learn. I gave you the information. Now, the next step for you is to learn how to use it correctly. All right. Now, in John chapter 5 today, you're going to find four absolute testimonies to Christ's deity. I wanted to give you the rest of the Bible first. Now, here it is. Now, first off, he says in verse 31 of John chapter 5, he says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Then Jesus is not going to get up and tell everybody that he is the Son of God in the sense that he is, you need to, he, he is going to let the witnesses speak for him. Then he gives us four examples of his witness that make it undeniable that he is the Son of God, very God. The first one's in John 32 and 33. He says, There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that that witness which he witnesses of me is true. He said unto John, and he bare witness unto this truth. Then the first witness to Christ being God was John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ. He shows up six months. He's the front man. He shows up six months before he does, and he paves the way for him. Now, John the Baptist, here again, wasn't some guy who just popped out of the wilderness with locust bug leaves on his teeth. He was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 8, that he was going to come before the true Christ came. Every scribe, Pharisee, everybody knew that. Everybody knew that scripture, that when John showed up, that was a fulfillment of the prophecy that he was a forerunner of the one that was going to be the true Christ. Every scribe, priest, Sadducee, and Pharisee 
knew that scripture. He baptized in Jordan. They knew why it was Jordan. They knew that when Joshua crashed over, he took 12 stones and put them down in Jordan, and then he took 12 stones out and put them on the shore where they crossed. Jesus, John is baptizing to Israel on that exact same spot. And they knew that. They knew that. And in Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, John nails them. And he looks at them when they come to him to question him, and he says, ye generation of vipers, you better flee from the wrath to come. You know why he said that? Because he knew they knew exactly who he was, and they knew exactly what the Scripture said, and they knew exactly who Christ was. Now the second witness, verse 36 but I have greater witnesses than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. When Christ came, the authority that he was who he said he was, the Son of God, was found not only in John's witness, but in the witness of his very works. Every scribe, every Pharisee, Everybody knew Exodus chapter 4 that when God dealt with Moses, he told him to put his hand in his bosom, and when he pulled it out, it was leprous, and then when he put it back in and he pulled it out again, it was clean the way it should be, and then God told them, I'm going to deal with this nation the same way with signs and wonders and miracles, the works. And when Jesus shows up, he just demonstrates that, that what nobody else could do. And every scribe, Pharisee, Sadducee, they knew exactly how to run that back to Exodus chapter 4. He did all the signs work through his works and fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy that anybody standing there in leadership, authority, and the common man knew that proved he was the Son of God. They saw all of that, and they had the Old Testament and Scriptures to know who he was. And you'll see that very carefully laid out in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33 through 40. They knew exactly who he was. I always like Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. It's a great verse, not only for back then, but for today. And it's a great lesson. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine because the doctrine of Christ is the first thing that we need to look for. And these people, common man, were astonished at it. Then he said, verse 29, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You know what that is a great lesson is? Your Bible, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, tells you that the first thing it's profitable for is doctrine. Because when you have the right doctrine, you'll have the right authority. So you've got churches today that want to get rid of doctrine. The Baptist churches, the charismatic churches, the neo-evangelical crowd, all of those churches, they want to get rid of doctrine. And when they get rid of doctrine, you know what you don't have? You don't have any final authority. No doctrine, no authority. 
The third thing is in verse 37 and 38. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent him ye believe not. And of course the key word here is abide. The word of God is not abiding with the scribes and the Pharisees. And without that abiding, which is our relationship with Christ and the word of God, God's not going to speak to you. Because they rejected him, they rejected the word. Now you remember a couple of weeks ago, I taught you about the seven things you lose when you lose your Bible. In John chapter 15, verse 7, you lose your abiding. So back in Christ's day, They were not abiding with Christ, so they couldn't get any truth. And today, because they rejected him, they couldn't get it back then. And today, we reject the book, which is him. There's no abiding today. So God's people can't get nothing from it. God's not talking to you. You know what that happens? You have to do exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did back then. You've got to make it up. And that's what they do. I appreciated the song they were singing today. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He was stamping out the vintage with the grapes of wrath of storm. You know, that's all second coming stuff. And it always ends. His truth is marching on. I remember who I was standing with back there, but I said, his truth ain't marching anywhere today. It's falling flat on his face. That's in the book of Hosea. It's falling in the streets. And of course... uh, that song was written back in, during the Civil War when one of the greatest revivals of awakenings was sweeping through the southern states. But that's another message. Then the fourth thing. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 46, he said, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote of me. Then the last witness we have is the book itself, the Word of God. And in your Bible, forget the Old Testament for a moment here and just, just, just look at your Bible in the Old Testament. Now, there's plenty of verses I gave you in the New Testament, but just put those aside for a moment. Let's just talk about searching the Scriptures and how they're going to prove that your Bible is true. Now, in your Bible in the Old Testament, you would find, and I have them in my Bible, and I will give them to you at some point if you so desire, you will have found 48 prophecies. 48 prophecies given about Christ 600 to 1,000 years before He was born, that pointed to his first coming in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As I said, these prophecies were given 600 to 1,000, 1,500 years before he was even born. And, uh, you know, you think about that, it, 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 the chances of all 48 prophecies coming to pass exactly as they were stated would be virtually impossible. It, it would be like me saying, In 3025, a man by the name of James Turner lived in St. Louis 
moved to Boston when he was 30 years old, lived at 151 Maple Street. His telephone number was 816-632-1425. He lived to be 50, and on April 12, 3075, he got hit by a blue Chevy pickup truck, license number BY409, at the corner of 9th and Chipman, and died at St. Mary's Hospital, was buried at North Lawn Cemetery uh, the third day, three days later. What would be the chances of me saying that about somebody that won't be born to 3025 and having every one of those things come true? Well, those 48 prophecies given 600 to 1,000, 1,500 years before he was uh, born, a guy by the name of Peter Stone uh, from... uh, uh, Western College, he did what we were calling at the time statistical mathematical probability. And he took the 48, he was a saved man, I think he did his thesis on this. He did, he took those 48 prophecies and ran them through a computer and wanted to calculate the chances against 48 prophecies given about one man with the exact detail of where he was born, where he was going to live, how he was going to die, how old he was going to be, all of those details. What would be the chances of that all coming to pass? And when the computer came out, the chances against those 48 prophecies about Christ coming to pass the way they did was 10 to the 157th power. Now, you may not know how big that number is. That's obviously 10 with 157 zeros after it. But let me put it into perspective for you. 10 to the 157th power, there are not that many electrons in our universe. And you can get 100,000 electrons on the head of a pin. If you had a universe that went 600 million light years this way, 600 million light years in every direction, you, with planets and everything's in it, start, you could still not get 10 to the 157th power electrons in it. That's how big it is. And yet, and yet, at the first coming of Christ, every one of those 48 prophecies came true. Why? Because search the scriptures. They're witness that what he claims is true. Now, when it comes to the second coming of Christ, I gave you 48 prophecies about the first coming. When it comes to the second coming, there's over 600 prophecies about that one. You have a supernatural book in front of you, folks. And that's why the devil hates it. I'm telling you right now, this is why they rejected him. Somebody else wants to be God. You have a book. They can laugh at you all that you want. They can make fun of you all that they want. You have a book in your lap today, if you have a King James Bible, that from a statistical, scientific, mathematical probability, the chances against just 48 things coming true are more than the electrons in the universe, and yet it came true, every one of them. That book that you have is proven right by science. Now, When I got out in the world a long time ago, I was, you know, I was, I was, you know, I got into, I got into astronomy and I believed in evolution. You know, I got into all that stuff. 
And at the time, I was now out of the Army, and I was going to Kent State University. And I only went a short time. And I remember in one of my classes, there was a couple of saved guys. And they began to witness to me. Now, I didn't tell them I was already saved. I, they were nice guys, and I, you know, I, I was just listening to them. You know, I was sitting there smoking my big cigar, you know, and then listening to what they had to say. And uh, so they got witnessing to me, and one night they said, could we show you something? And I said, absolutely. And I, they pulled me aside and took me down to the cafeteria. We got a cup of coffee, and they showed me. One of them was doing this statistical mathematical probability on the 10th to the 157th power for his thesis. And he laid that thing out for me. And you see, I was saved, probably. And at least I had an awareness of God. And I like to attribute the fact that I am where I'm at today. Now, I'm a scoundrel, and I'm a piece of crap. I, let me just put that up front. But one thing about me with God is, and I thank God for this, that when I saw the truth, I was smart enough not to alibi my way around it, and I just believed it was the truth. And when they showed me that 10 to the 157th power, I was devastated. That was the key that told me I needed to learn that book. It was at that night, I know it worked its way through some things because God always does, but that night when those guys showed me that, that ended it for me. I knew I had to get a lot of things lined out, but as far as that Bible being truth and everything else false, that was it. I thank God that I was at least honest enough in that to accept that because it was undeniable. And I've met God's people, people, God's people, unsaved people, who you lay that out where the chances against that book and you go into heaven without it is less than a, the electrons in the universe, and you'll still think you can beat it. I got a lot of problems, and a lot of problems back then, but at least at that point in my life, and I thank God for it every day, I came to the reality, I couldn't beat it anymore. And at that point, it was when God began to work in my life. Because I was faced with a statistical, mathematical probability of searching the Scriptures, because in it, I couldn't deny it. It was fixed. And from that point on in my life, I've never denied or didn't believe that whenever I've been taught, trained, thought was right, I threw it out the window when it came to that book. And I have dedicated my life for the rat point on to proclaiming that there's only one absolute truth in this world, and it's the Bible that you hold in your lap. And I, God sends me people who want to learn it too. And if people don't want to learn it and don't want to believe it, I don't care. But I know it's the truth because it's greater than the electrons in the universe. Proven by a scientific fact. By the way, you know what the chances of evolution being true is through the statistical mathematical probability? 10 to the 2,000th power. 10 with 2,000 zeros after it. My book, 10 to the 157th power, is incredibly hard to believe, but yet on that day, he showed up. He fulfilled every one of them. You got the right book. You believe the right thing. You see, what this church teaches 
has been established. Everything we believed wasn't just what crazy old Bob came up with or read here or read there. It had been thrashed out through 2,000 years of the church dealing with it, facing it, going through the scriptures with it, and coming out with the truth and then passing it down to you and me. You know what our job is? Pass it down to the next generations. Keep it going. Well, Emmanuel, God is with us. But then the fifth cherub and the fifth cotomist has done everything he can, like he did at the first coming, right before the second coming, to stop that. Well, next week we'll have another great teaching out of John chapter 5. It's a great chapter. And I'm going to take it to a more personal note next week, and we'll look at it from there. 10 to the 157th power. If you're not here, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, and you're not sure if you died right now to go to heaven, I'll be up here for a few minutes. I would make a beeline to me, and I will get someone to take you, or a guy if you're a gal, or a girl if you're a girl, and I'll take the greatest book the world has ever seen, and will give you the assurance of salvation that are more than the electrons in the known universe. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.